and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today, we're thrilled to be talking to John Jost. John is Professor of Psychology and Politics and Co-Director of the Center for Social and Political Behavior at NYU. He's one of the leading global lights of social psychology and is most famous for his work on the psychology of political ideology and system justification theory. That system justification theory is what we're going to be talking about today, also in the context of the publication of his last book, A Theory of System Justification, uh, which we'll we'll, uh, link to in the show notes, and which also marks 25 years since the birth of the idea. So, John, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tori. It's my pleasure. You're very kind. It's It's great to have you with us. Um, As I understand it, social scientists have traditionally seen the world as a sort of a bit of an us versus them, poor versus rich, strong versus weak, in versus out group. But the work you've done suggests that almost always the disadvantaged members of society are invested and committed and almost complicit in the very systems that keep them down. You talk about black kids preferring white dolls, women who feel entitled to lower salaries, victims blaming themselves, people, and we know this around the world, constantly voting against their own economic interests. As I understand it, your work shows that at sort of at the deepest psychological level, victims are somehow committed to the systems that subjugate them. Is that a highest level description of what system justification theory talks to? Uh, can you open that up a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I, th- I think that is a very helpful overview. I don't know if I would say, you know, almost always or things like that. Um, but I would say that there are, in addition to the fairly obvious kind of material advantages of of advantage groups, they have a lot of social and psychological advantages as well that lead us to uh, lead members of disadvantaged groups as well as um, others to kind of see things their way and to give them in many ways the benefit of the doubt. So I wouldn't deny at all that there are um, intergroup dynamics that of the form that you described of us versus them or ethnocentric tendencies and so on, but the research really consistently shows that there's an asymmetry um, and that that the that people who are relatively advantaged are are much more um, uh, unambiguous i'd say in their favoritism for their own kind than members of disadvantaged groups and and in part that's because uh, members of disadvantaged groups are not making the world they're they're trying to cope with the world that is at times uh, very difficult and challenging for for them, uh, and I think it's I think we can't we can't overestimate how difficult it would be to live a life in which you are relentlessly 
challenging and criticizing uh, everything <laughs> and everyone around you. Uh, I think that that's not a, a, a really a, a long-term sustainable viable existence. And so I think that all of us in various ways have to make peace with the world as we find it, with the status quo. Um, you know, that's not to say we love everything about it. And that's not to say there aren't times in which we want something better for ourselves or for, for people like us, but it's to say that it's a complicated mix of motives that we have. And, and some of those motives, I think, are making it harder to change the way things are. I want to come eventually to this point that you finish with here about changing the way things are, um, because I think you think of it as lots of social psychologists do as sort of part of the job description to not only sort of elucidate some of the systems which um, impact the way we live in the world, but also to try and improve them. But before, before we get there, if that's okay, I, I'd love to do a little bit of a history tour of the different ways in which people have understood this peculiar phenomenon of, say, um, people voting against their interests, people being committed to systems which hold them down. And there's a long history here. There's a there's, there's the, the cognitive side, there's social political approaches to this. You mention, amongst others, Daniel Kahneman, status quo bias, Marx, Engels, Gramsci, McKinnon. Can you give us a little bit of the history of the ways in which people have understood this peculiar phenomenon? Sure. Uh, in some ways, you could, you could point to um, uh, uh, an essay that was written by a law student in France in the middle 1500s uh, named Etienne de la Boitier, who uh, is now remembered really only for being a friend of Montaigne, so when he was just 22 years old, he wrote an essay for a law school in France and called The Discourse of Voluntary Servitude. And in this, um, in this essay, he was trying to understand why throughout human history, there have been so many cases of tyrannical leaders who remain in power despite the fact that the majorities uh, were oppressed by, the, by these um, individuals and their, and their cadre. Um, and, uh, you know, why would the masses who have the power uh, kind of sit back and put up with this? And um, he went through various possibilities, some of which I think are, are some of which are, you could see as material or economic. You know, there, there is an issue of patronage and people getting crumbs and, uh, and so on from the table. Um, but there's also, I think, what I think of as social psychological forces or what you might also think of as, as ideology or propaganda. Um, but, he, but there's an element, I, I feel, of motivation even in his writings, that there's some sense in which people want to believe that, that the powerful leaders on which we depend are benevolent in some sense or are deserving of their uh, place above us in some sense. So again, these are complicated things. There's not one or two or three motives. There's a lot of motives uh, in human behavior. Uh, but I would say that this idea was a super interesting uh, one. And, and because uh, people at the time found it to be such an interesting and somewhat revolutionary kind of way of thinking, uh, his work, his essay was passed down for generations 
it, it was published as a pamphlet at various times, and it was it was passed down in manuscript form. And many uh, famous philosophers uh, encountered it and and were influenced by it and mentioned it in their own writings. Um, and then I, I think you can kind of follow that trajectory from from De La Boetier down to at least the early uh, Karl Marx uh, writings about ideology uh, and, and and with Engels, false consciousness, and this idea that, um, I'm talking about the, kind of the, his early work as in the German ideology and things like this before they went in, in a very kind of economically deterministic direction. So it's sometimes referred to as the humanistic or sociological aspects of Marx um, that were picked up by the Frankfurt School later. But, um, but in writing about uh, ideology and the functions of ideology, Marx and Engels noted that kind of the ruling ideas of every era are the, the ideas of the ruling class. And this is so, sort of a similar idea that um, in addition to all the material advantages, you have kind of ideological advantages by being, um, by being part of the group that is ruling. And that gives you an opportunity to spread your ideas and people are, we're very social creatures. And so even those of us who are, who are, um, you know, however you want to put it lower in the food chain or, or lower on the totem pole or whatever are, are going to end up internalizing many aspects of that perspective. And so this is the concept in, in the Marxian tradition and, and in the feminist tradition of false consciousness. And, um, and so throughout the 20th century, You've got uh, so-called Western Marxists like Antonio Gramsci writing about the spontaneous consent uh, given by the masses to the dominant ideology. You've got uh, in, in Hungary, Juri uh, Lukács uh, writing about cultural hegemony and class consciousness uh, and so on. And they, they influenced a lot of sociologists and social theorists throughout the 20th century, uh, including Berger and Luckman, who wrote uh, this uh, I think a very interesting book called uh, The Social Construction of Reality, 1966, where they talk about how the way things are, uh, kind of ordinary social interaction has, um, among other things, it, it contributes to a process of legitimation of the status quo. The things that we take for granted acquire a kind of default level legitimacy. And this plays out in social interaction. So just simply by having uh, all these conversations and interactions in which everyone is acting like everything is normal, normalizes the status quo in, in a, a variety of different ways. Can you give uh, an example, and, John, of, 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 of this kind of normalization? Sure. I mean, I, I, think, I think some of the examples that they use are about uh, religious, religious interactions or religious institutions, um, but even institutions like marriage or something. I mean, the, the conversations we have around, for instance, marriage or the nuclear family or something gives those systems uh, a kind of default level legitimacy that we're, they're taken for granted um, as, as legitimate. We're not seeing them through a critical eye or we're not thinking about um, who is excluded from these institutions, for instance. We take them for granted and they, they, they acquire a broad kind of legitimacy that is, is, it's not that it's never questioned, it's that it's seldom questioned, right? Um, and so that can leave certain people feeling uh, excluded or, or not even feeling excluded, just objectively excluded. And, um, and, and there's, there's so many social systems like that 
uh, from education and, and the workplace to, um, you know, the political system to the family. All these things are social systems, and we end up taking most of it for granted in our in our daily interactions. And that has a, a, a way of reinforcing it on, and it's a kind of ideological force that it acquires over time throughout the lifespan. Can I ask you to pull apart this idea of false consciousness, which threads all the way through the thinkers that you've just described into this idea of systems thinking? Yeah, I think it's an important concept. The way I think about it is, um, and it's related to what Marx does say about ideology. He talks about um, ideology as uh, as having effects that are similar to cognitive and perceptual illusions. It kind of turns the world upside down. So we see things uh, in an inverted or distorted form. And to me, that's a useful way of thinking about what false consciousness is. It's a way of um, us seeing things that maybe are not so legitimate as being highly legitimate. Um, and that causes us to kind of, uh, as, as uh, some Marxian authors have written, kind of invest in our own unhappiness in certain ways. And this, this idea was taken up by a lot of feminist theorists. Uh, I think Catherine McKinnon and, uh, wrote a great book in 1989 called Toward a Feminist Theory of the State, where she uh, critiques Marxism from a feminist point of view, and she critiques feminism from a Marxist point of view and makes both better, I think. Uh, but, but central to her account is, is this concept of false consciousness and the need to overcome it uh, through consciousness-raising activities, which, of course, were, were very big in the 1960s and so on, where women, in that case, needed to look at their lives and all the ways in which they had been prepared, uh, including by their families and people who loved them and whom they loved, preparing them for a life that was less than, um, than, uh, than satisfactory on certain dimensions that was confining. Um, and, and there was a need to kind of liberate and to liberate in reality and behavior, you first need to kind of liberate mentally in your mind. And so I think that's why um, one of the things that any kind of social movement for change needs to accomplish is a kind of undoing of the the kind of indoctrination that all of us experience in some ways. And that's not to say everything about the world as we find it is, is wrong and awful and horrible either. It's just that, that it takes it takes special effort to see things critically in order to make changes that will result in um, a freer and happier existence in the long run. And that's, I think, the essence of, of overcoming false consciousness through consciousness-raising activities and processes. Is it almost that it's it's much easier to see what's there than what isn't, and it's much easier to understand the justifications for what's there than to come out and critique them? Yeah, that's. I think that's part of it for sure. That the things that we that are, that are familiar to us um, uh, are much easier for us to understand and, and, and grasp. And uh, in a way, that's a connection to to someone else you mentioned, Danny Kahneman in Prospect Theory. Um, the things that are easily accessible to us that we have a lot of experience with, they serve often as a kind of uh, reference point or anchor or. or uh, um, or as um, as a Henri Tashfeld, founder of social identity theorists, uh, theory, who, who who taught for years at Bristol University in the UK, um, argued that that there's a kind of lack of cognitive alternatives. 
to the status quo in many cases. So um, it, it, it's harder to think about uh, counterfactuals to reality. What, what would be a better life? What would be a better social system? Um, those things are much harder to come up with a, with a concrete formulation of than to say, well, how did my parents do it? And how did my grandparents do it? And, and, and so on. So yeah, I think the, there's a way in which the status quo enjoys a lot of advantages, psychological uh, and otherwise, over counterfactual alternatives to gotcha. it. That makes lots of sense. Um, so we've got, there's some cognitive reasons for this um, yeah. status quo advantage. Um, yeah. There's some social and political ones you've just gone through, which is the dominant class gets to define the dominant ideology. They're the ones who set the rules. They're the ones who describe what makes reality, et cetera, et cetera. But where your theory, system justification theory comes in, is it posits that there is profound psychological uh, needs that are being answered by um, by this identification with a system which can be profoundly oppressive. Um, and um, and that they express themselves in a very granular and multiple different ways across across people's individual psychologies. Sort of a motivated social cognition there. It's sort of built into the very structure of our, our sense of self. Absolutely. In terms of the mo- the underlying kind of motivational basis for why um, people become psychologically invested in the status quo, even if it's if it harms their objective interests in various ways. I point now, the way I think about it now, I point to epistemic, existential, and relational motives. And I'll I'll tell you what those mean. The epistemic motivation is the desire to reduce uncertainty, to acquire uh, a subjective sense of of predictability, control, uh, certainty. And uh, there are existential uh, needs as well for safety, security, to uh, manage uh, threat, feelings of, of threat and fear, and there are relational motives to bond with uh, valued, important others, uh, including our, our family members, including our friends, including mainstream society as a whole. And the status quo, I think, has advantages in all three of these domains as well. That um, kind of you know the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Um, there is some. Uh, advantage uh, in, in terms of offering certainty to, to what is familiar to us. So we, because we have experience with uh, the way things are done, in, in my case, in American society, in yours, maybe British society, there's a sense in which our experiences and the familiarity of them provide us with a subjective sense of certainty that that is is far superior than again counterfactual alternatives to it which are which are highly uncertain um existential needs there's a sense of of kind of safety security protection that is afforded by uh, believing in the goodness and the, the legitimacy and the desirability of the social systems that we depend on and there are relational uh, needs that are met. I can I can bond with my grandmother or my aunt or my uncle over these things, including the nuclear family and and marriage and in some case you know, for some people religion and for you know other people various things. But um, the point is that all of these things are pulling are, are providing kind of psychological I think uh, motivation for us to want to see 
the social systems on which we depend as being relatively legitimate, desirable, good, and so on, which doesn't mean we see them as perfect either necessarily, um, although some people act as if they do. Um, but the point is, it's these are these are important motivations for us to understand if we want to know why. Uh, to, to answer Villeboetier's question of why people put up with an unjust status quo for very long periods of time. But what I'm saying about epistemic, existential, and relational needs, maybe it's easier to think about it kind of in, in the converse in terms of what, what social and political activists, people who are really trying um, uh, with all their heart to change the status quo, what they, what they have to tolerate and what they have to put up with. Um, you know, if you're a member of a of a social movement that really wants to change the status quo, whether it's Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter or or whatever kind of system challenging um, social movement or organization you can think of, people who are out there uh, on a daily basis protesting, demonstrating, and so on, they have to put up with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of potential threats and a, a real chance of being cut off from friends and family members. Um, so, you know, when you, go, when you go to a demonstration or a march, you don't know what's gonna happen. Um, and you don't even know if you're successful what's gonna happen on the day after the revolution, right? There's huge amounts of uncertainty about all of it. There's threat, you know, are you gonna, are you gonna be beaten up by, by counter protesters? Are you gonna be beaten up by the police? Are you gonna be taken to jail? Are you gonna end up in the hospital? Uh, there are a lot of threats, um, even physical threats, and, and in some countries more than others, to standing up against the status quo. Uh, and then there are relational things. Maybe, maybe your parents or your, uh, your grandparents don't understand um, how you can be committed to this cause or you know, why you have so many problems and criticisms of, of the way things are. Why can't you just accept the way things are? And so on. So, so I, I think this helps to explain why burnout rates, I think, are super high among political activists. Uh, in order to do this day in, day out, you really have to tolerate a lot of uncertainty, a lot of threat, and, and the potential of, of being socially ostracized and treated like a deviant. These are, these are powerful things. Right. Um, not easy to do. Can I ask you to go to walk us through some of the experiments that you've done, which help us see the depth and granularity of this kind of system justification that goes on at an individual level? So, so I took real world groups, but I provided people in, in one condition with information that one group was superior in some regard. I, I, I don't mean um, in terms of their, character, their psychological characteristics. I mean that they uh, were more successful uh, often it was so, socially and economically successful. So I took, uh, for, in one, one example is I took University of Maryland students in College Park, Maryland, and told and had them give me their stereotypes about themselves and about um, another group, an outgroup of University of Virginia students. But I, had, I asked for those stereotypes after I provided them with information that either after graduation, University of Maryland students made more money than University of Virginia students, or I told other, student, other students that University of Virginia uh, alumni made more money than University of Maryland alumni. So in, in, in essence, taking a group that's real to people, that means something to people, uh, so it's not a trivial ad hoc thing, um, but I'm experimentally manipulating in essence, the socioeconomic status of the two groups right. relative to one another, um, and so, and, and then what I and so what I found was 
was that under these conditions, we, we clearly did uh, obtain evidence for outgroup favoritism. So when Maryland students thought that Virginia students made more money than them, they also thought that, um, that Virginia students were smarter than them, more hardworking, uh, more industrious, more, more competent in a variety of ways. Uh, sometimes they would compensate by, by saying, but we're more friendly or we're more casual or we're more fun or something like that. But it turns out that that also, I think, lends legitimacy to the status quo, because then what you have is a kind of um, illusion of equality. Um, and so the, the disadvantaged group, if they acknowledge the superiority or they create, really, in this case, it's a creation, the, the, the superiority of the, of the outgroup. Um, uh, and then they make themselves feel better by saying, but we're better on something else that turns out is not so valued by this particular social system, but it makes us feel better. But what it does is it creates, it allows everyone to be more satisfied with the overarching social system because there's a kind of illusion of equality. Well, they're better at this and we're better at that. And, and, and you see this in gender dynamics too. Gender stereotypes work very similarly to this. Um, that men are, are, are competent, assertive, agentic, etc. get the job done. Uh, women are nurturant and warm and friendly and caring and so on. And so society is kind of a cooperation of, uh, of groups that have something going for them, but not everything. No one has a monopoly on everything that's good. Um, but what this does is it creates a kind of basis in stereotypes and, and ordinary thinking that is a kind of ideological legitimation of the status quo. And it leads people to accept uh, existing relations, for instance, between men and women, the division of labor within the family, within society, as fair, as, as more fair, as more legitimate, and so on, than they would if they didn't see it in, in this way. John, you've just touched on this question of stereotypes, which, as I understand for you, is a, the fundamental building blocks of the system. Is that right? They sort of work as the ways in which people understand power dynamics. Tell me, understand that a little bit more. Sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, what a stereotype is really is a belief about the characteristics of a group of people. Uh, and they can be positive characteristics or they can be negative characteristics. But I think that they do a lot of ideological work. And sometimes we don't, you know, fully appreciate how much ideological work they're doing. Um, social psychologists early on realized that stereotypes serve a cognitive function of, of saving energy. Um, so, uh, it, you know, they came to be thought of as heuristics, as, as um, energy saving devices. Uh, if I can just, you know, put this group in that box and this group in that box and so on, I don't have to think about <laughs> the complexity of all the individuals in those groups and so on. Okay. And I think that certainly is part of it. But that's not the only thing that, it, that stereotypes are doing. They're not just simplifying our world. They're also legitimizing our world. They're also telling us why the people at the top belong at the top. They have characteristics that justify them being at the top and staying at the top and so on. And the groups at the bottom, uh, the same thing. The stereotypes we have of them typically are legitimizing, explaining, and justifying why they're at the bottom, why they should be at the bottom, why they'll, they'll probably be at the bottom for a long time, uh, and, and so on. So it's not just simplifying, it's also legitimizing or rationalizing or justifying. So can we look at this from an evolutionary perspective as well, which is I feel like what we're doing here is in, in part, um, there is there is obvious evolutionary benefit in um 
aligning ourselves with something that we can't change because too much energy, too much resource would be spent worrying about an inevitability. Are there other sort of evolutionary reasons, if you're thinking about the evolutionary psychology of this system justification behavior, how else would you understand it? I find evolutionary psychology to be really vexing um, because it's really difficult for us to know, I think, what life was was really like for our evolutionary ancestors. Um, you know, there's no fossil record of human behavior. And so, you know, we can, we, we have, you know, excellent anthropologists trying to do the very best they can at figuring out, you know, what the social lives were like of of uh, people in our evolutionary past, but it's still, there's an element of conjecture. And so I, I think there is a true evolutionary psychology. I just don't know if we're in a position to figure out what it is. So I feel like we're always in, gonna be therefore in the domain of speculation. Um, but I think that, yes, it is, it is easy to imagine that, for, first of all, it's, it's, it certainly could be to the advantage of the group if people go along rather than fight amongst themselves and going along means among other things the people at the bottom of the pecking order uh putting up with uh their their deprivation to some degree and not challenging and fighting over everything and as, especially as 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 i was saying that that if if you're likely to get killed in the process and then you can't pass on your genes anyway so um so there are there are presumably fitness advantages both for the individual and for the group if in general we're not we're not fighting about every little injustice or every little inequality and that we're actually tolerating a lot of it and we're creating um, something that can have some social stability but what that ends up doing is it it does end up um, kind of reifying the status and power differences within even a, a small society. And, and as Sapolsky's work has shown, that has negative consequences for the physiology of the people at the bottom. There's much more stress and lots of physiological indicators of, of stress and so on when you're, when you're low in the pecking order compared to when you're higher in the pecking order. Um, so the individual is suffering even at a physiological level by buying into the, the uh, hierarchy that exists even in these, in these small societies, even in other, in, in other primates. I mean, I, I, this actually links us to the question I was going to ask and you've already answered, which is, does system justification work? And so far as, you know, there's lots of evidence, I think there's lots of evidence, you'll contradict me, um, that uh, conservative people, that religious people, that people who make themselves, to use your term, make peace with the established society around them are happier than people who are, to your point, activists burning out, bashing their heads against trying to change stuff. So does it work? Are we right to be system justifiers in the, in the main? Well, if all we care about is is happiness, then then you could make that case, sure. Um, I, I don't, maybe it's the way I was raised, but I don't think happiness is everything. <laughs> you know, it's a good thing, but it's not the only good thing. Justice is good too, and other things. Um, but... And you've just mentioned the fact that the people at the bottom of the society in system justifying structures suffer physically, physiologically. That's right. right? That's so, right. so so that's part of part of my answer is short term versus long term. 
um, trade-offs. So, so I think um, feeling that the system is, is good, that the people, the authorities are beneficial and taking care of you and so on, that can feel good in the short term. Um, but, but over long periods of time, if you're, if you're um, disadvantaged, that can have chronic uh, consequences. And so um, people have been just doing some really interesting work along these lines with regard to uh, sexual minorities. Um, so members of the LGBTQ community who on, on, on one sense, uh, on, on certain sh short-term things, it's an advantage to not see discrimination against members of your group as being very strong, as thinking that society is basically, you know, pretty reasonable and fair and, and so on, it treats people like you relatively well. But in the long run, it, it also can involve um, things like internalized homophobia, um, not being at peace and okay with who you are um, because you are psychologically kind of committed to mainstream society and the legitimacy of it, even though you're not valued necessarily by that mainstream society. So I think we have to think in terms of advantages and disadvantages. Um, and so, so yes, there are more advantages to system justification if you're a member of an advantage group versus a disadvantage group. You're right that, um, that in I think every country where I've seen good data from um, people who are politically conservative are report being happier. Um, they're they're higher on subjective well-being, and I think and we've been able to show, and other people have been able to show, that partly it's because people with those ideologies do not experience uh, inequality as being as unfair and unjust uh, as people who are on the left of the spectrum do. So there's advantages in a purely kind of hedonic sense to seeing uh, everything as, as completely fair and, and, and desirable. And there are disadvantages in terms of happiness, subjective well-being of seeing injustice everywhere. Um, but on the other hand, and back to the, you know, the question of, of uh, in a way, this is an evolutionary question too, or at least it's a question about change and improvement. Um, you know, it's better for society and for the group as a whole, maybe, if we can move to um, social systems that are more just, uh, rather than defending and sticking with the ones that are familiar, simply because they're unfamiliar. Um, if we can come up with better social systems, then we, we would want to do that. And then, um, you know, there wouldn't be as much of that kind of chronic physiological stress and other, other downsides for people. Yeah, it almost feels as if social justice itself is an evolutionary category, like uh, that one might ask why groups don't evolve for, to develop greater social justice on the premise that it would make us more competitive. Yeah, right. I mean, there, there definitely is research that shows that um, groups that behave in a more egalitarian, pro-social way are more cooperative with each other and they're, they they operate uh, in a more coordinated uh, fashion as a, as a group. And in, in that sense, if you're one group competing against another group, then that would be an advantage. Um, but there's other times when maybe when people are even within the same group are competing with each other for resources. Uh, and that's a different story. But, but and it gets back to the, the ultimately, I think, the ambiguity of, of what we can and can't say about our evolutionary past. Uh, but there was there, there have been arguments that that suggests something like what you're saying. And Christopher Bohm has a, a book uh, arguing that um, we, in, a, in addition to 
to other things that that we apparently have evolved a preference for, there is an inequality. There, there, there is. He argues a kind of aversion to to gross inequality. That kind of that that at some point, if the people at the top are are too greedy and selfish, that there will be a rebellion from people at the bottom, and that that is a kind of countervailing force against sort of pure dominance and so on, which would which would have its own uh, advantages. And so so that on some level, it's 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 um, it's it's like a break on on too much oppression and too much uh, inequality. But of course, these things in human beings are enormously complicated and, and we're affected by so much more than just our genes, um, you know, including our, our whole cultural <laughs> milieu and so on. And so uh, so that's I think that's part of the story. But obviously, the whole focus on propaganda and ideology and so on is a whole nother, you know, level of analysis that has to be taken into account. So I was um, just sort of to, to, to begin to wrap here. Um, one of the things which struck me reading about system justification and the tremendous rarity with which people push back against it. You have a line from Howard Zinn, which is um, human history has infinitely more advantages, instances of forbearance to exploitation and submission to authority than it does have examples of any kind of revolt. I wondered whether how important having an alternate system is a system which helps frame what revolt would look like. I'm thinking whether it's the Communist Manifesto or recently Thomas Piketty or Antonio Gramsci that you mentioned earlier, people who've articulated a different way of seeing the world. How important is that verbalized alternative system used to justify an attack on the other? In other words, do we have to intellectualize our way into understanding oppression? Do we have to do it cognitively before we can do it in a felt way? Well, uh, I don't know if we have to, but I think there would be advantages to doing so. Um, so sometimes I think social change can happen in a haphazard, almost accidental way, although it's it's rare. But I think that the most successful, you know, paradigm changes, you know, quantum improvements in human uh, life have come with when there's a plan for the day after the the you know. And so I, I think there is a real advantage to to that. You know, many many people have argued against that that you can't have a, a blueprint for you know for what comes after. And and the problem with many utopian visions is that they're very light on the details and and they can be inspiring, but but they don't solve the epistemic existential and relational needs that we have. They don't tell us. They don't satisfy. If they're if they're too vague, uh, they don't satisfy our needs for certainty, our needs for safety and security. I mean, anarchy could be really dangerous <laughs> for most of us. Uh, for instance, if we don't think through like how we're going to solve the problems, and we pretend that that the problems don't exist, we're not going to, you know, it's not going to be a very successful kind of revolution. I think so. Um, so we need to take those things into account and how we're going to build consensus and so on for to solve the relational motives i think i think we do want to think this through but the other point you make is is um there's a big difference between imagining a vague counterfactual alternative to the status quo versus seeing a real alternative in a neighboring state or a neighboring country and i do think that what i'm saying is very consistent 
with what at a, a, a macro level, you know, you could describe as kind of the domino theory of, of social change, right? So in the 1980s, um, you know, you get new social movements happening uh, in, in Hungary and in the Czech Republic because they can see what's happening in Poland uh, and so on. And so the, the, and the fact that, you know, that a movement, and you could say the same thing about the Arab Spring a few years ago, you know, when you see uh, a successful regime change, in one country that you can see some similarities between your country and that country, it changes the entire world psychologically. And I think leaders know this. I think I think foreign policy advisors know this. Uh, it changes everyone's psychological reality in one oppressed country to see that they've managed to um, overthrow the oppressor in a neighboring country. That's a huge psychological change, among other things. And uh, and so, yes, I think we can't underestimate the extent to which which having real models of alternative social systems is hugely important. So on the one hand, having an articulated justification for protest works, and on the other, um, having explicit examples um, that the that alternatives are possible works. Are there anything else talking to your um, a- activist listeners, but are you, if the, as we were saying earlier, if, you know, part of the job of a social, of a social psychologist is to cure the ills that they're identifying, what's your, what are your, um, what are the tools in your, in your yeah. box? Here? Well, that's right. Uh, I mean, one of the, so, so in general, you could say that, that the, the kinds of social psychological processes that I'm describing contribute stability to the to the social system to the status quo but that doesn't mean that change is impossible Um, and in fact some of these dynamics if they're used skillfully can be used on behalf of uh, efforts to promote social change and so um, uh, you know one one thing is that when people feel that an alternative is is not only possible but likely um, at some point, there's a tipping point, uh, and, and other, you know, um, political economists and others have described this in different ways. Um, but I think at the psychological level of analysis, it's consistent that that, and it's related to what we were just saying about the kind of the domino theory in Eastern Europe or in in the Arab Spring, or something. That you know, at some point, it's you you switch over from uh, regime change being extremely unlikely to actually likely. And when it becomes likely, then you've got the force of the anticipated status quo on your side. And that's also why I think it happens so fast. It's, it's, it's a, a very fast tipping point. You go from thinking that an alternative is really not possible to, oh, it's possible. Oh, it's likely, it's happening. Look at that. And then, bam. And then, and then all these psychological processes I'm talking about are working in your favor. And, and that's why, and I think that's why, you know, dictators and other people and colonial powers and so on, they know these things too, and on some level. And that's why they move so quickly when something is gathering momentum, because the momentum can change very quickly. Um, and maybe we could say social media makes that even happen even faster. Um, I think that's a possibility for sure that, um, that, that it's a way of changing the, the definition of, of 
of reality and what's likely to take place. So that's one way in which system justification motivation could actually be on the service of social change once it gets to a certain point. But there's other things too, which, which you can think of in terms of framing effects or, or communication effects or persuasion effects. Um, you know, one of the things that we found uh, in our research is that that people who are uh, high system justifiers, especially high system justifiers in the economic domain, they're they're big fans of capitalism, uh, and so on. They think the capitalist system is 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 not only efficient uh, and desirable, but but fair and legitimate and just and so on. Uh, people who have that view are are amongst the more, and at least in in the U.S. Um, resistant to acknowledging problems of anthropogenic climate change and doing something about it. And so what we found was, well, how do you get past that psychological defensiveness? You know, people don't want to do something about climate change because they think it would acknowledging the problem and doing something about the problem would involve suggesting that the market-based system is problematic in certain ways or that at least needs to be reined in or controlled or regulated or whatever it is. Um, um, they're defensive against that possibility. Uh, and so what do you do? Well, one of the things we tried to do uh, to reach that group of people is to frame the need to do something about climate change as consistent with preserving the American way of life, um, the American dream and so on. And so, you know, it's a way of, of, of framing the need to, to protect the environment as a kind of conservative uh, impulse. And in that, in we, you know, at least in small scale experiments, you know, we haven't, we haven't brought this out to scale. That would be great to do sometime um, if we had the resources to do that. But in, in small scale experiments, we and other people have had success at getting uh, even high system justifiers, political conservatives, more open to wanting to do something about climate change when it's framed as a way of protecting and preserving uh, the American way of life that's familiar to them, that, that was like what their parents had, what their grandparents had, et cetera. Um, and so, and that's in a way that's taking some of the threat out of um, the perception of change because part of what people don't wanna do is, is change everything. Um, so, you know, to get some people on board, we have to point out that we need to make some changes if you want things to continue as they were before in any way. John, I can't thank you enough for walking us through a really very complex idea so extremely clearly. Um, it's been deeply instructional for me and, and, um, and I'm enormously grateful. Thank you for giving us well, the time. Well, thank you. I'm very grateful. I thank you and I thank your listeners as well. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.